Well, it's rather scary when someone says they've read everything you've written. All those emails, <laughs> text messages. But I'm grateful for those kind words. Ian, thank you for the welcome I've received from all of you. Uh, Pastor Ian and Pastor Brian, especially. Uh, Brian has done all the logistical work, at least that's been visible to me. Um, in arranging all this, so thank you for that. The great hospitality you've all provided, the welcome I've received here, thank you so much. And it's been a great, uh, a great honor to be here. Normally, what I would do is what you're accustomed to. I would take one passage of Scripture and work my way through that. But this time, we're, we're doing this conference theme of diagnosing your spiritual health. If uh, you go to the doctor and uh, it's an annual checkup sort of thing, they might uh, ask you know, how you're sleeping and uh, certain diagnostic questions about this, that, and other about your health. And by means of these questions, get a better idea to diagnose your physical health. This conference has been about uh, questions to diagnose your spiritual health. But if you've not been a part of the conference so far, you might have thought, well, this is like, uh, you know, how are, are you into the Bible more this year than last year? Well, that may or may not be an indication of spiritual health. I mean, the Pharisees could have done pretty well in a question like that. So these questions have been not so much quantitative, but qualitative. So the, we began with, do you thirst for God? And that's something that's not easy to measure, but this isn't about certain objective measurements. It, it's uh, not often easy to measure spiritual things in objective terms like that. So this morning, it's another one of those kinds of questions. It's qualitative, more quantitative. And the question is, do you yearn? Do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Uh, Ian mentioned that I pastored uh, for 24 years, 15 years a church in the suburbs of Chicago before I became a seminary professor. But when I was especially a young pastor, I sometimes was frustrated by the emphasis elderly church members placed upon heaven. Uh, it was like, well, don't you have any goals for your spiritual life now? You know, I mean, what, what about now? What about before you die? You know, what, what, what are your goals for your spiritual life, for your impact for the kingdom? But now that I'm more than twice the age that I was when I sort of muttered those uh, thoughts... I am uh, a lot closer to the age of those to whom I directed those kind of disparaging thoughts. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to believe that a lot of my thinking then was just the thinking of a zealous but immature minister. Because it makes sense that anyone who's been on a long journey increasingly anticipates the conclusion of that journey, the goal of that journey, especially a journey as glorious and excellent as the destination of heaven is. People who have spent decades loving Jesus, obviously, increasingly anxious to see Jesus. Now, it's obvious those kind of characteristics and longings should be in the hearts of those who are living right on the borders of heaven, so to speak. I would contend this morning that those kinds of longings and groanings actually should characterize all those on that journey, regardless of how far along on that journey they are. So let me say, first of all, that growing Christians are groaning Christians. 
So this conference is about spiritual health, spiritual growth, certain markers that if they are true, you are growing as a Christian. You are healthy spiritually. We're saying that if you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus, that is a mark of spiritual health and growth. And along that line, so then growing Christians are groaning Christians. In Romans 8, verses 22 to 23, is we're going to take this biblical topic of longing for heaven and to be with Jesus and look at several texts. First one is in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, where the Apostle Paul calls attention to the groans of the entire creation, but especially to the part of that creation made in the image of God and who are indwelled by the Spirit of God as they await the removal of the corruption that's been in this world since sin entered the world. He writes in Romans 8, 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, not just all creation, but we also who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now notice that these human groaners here are not exceptionally devoted Christians. It doesn't say that there are, you know, your ordinary run-of-the-mill Christians, and then there are some who are eagerly awaiting the redemption of their body. They're, They're groaning for it. They can't wait for the time when they will be in heaven and see Jesus and have a new body. It says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Every Christian, everyone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, everyone who has this alien presence from heaven living within them, and this second person living in their body, in addition to their own souls, there's another person living in the body of the Christian, that is the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways you can determine if it is true in your case that this second person lives in your body. It's not just an imagination. It's not just a a, a belief without foundation. But one of the ways you can tell if this other person dwells in your body is he produces this groaning, groaning, eagerly awaiting the redemption of the body. This coming great change in the human body from one place to another, and from one kind of body to another. Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 2, he says, For in this, and he's referring to our earthly bodies, in this we groan. There's that word again. In this we groan, just like he described in Romans 8, 22. In this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is in heaven, a new glorified body. But these groans that he's describing here is not just, man, I want a new body. I'm tired of a body with a bald head and with a bad knee from football and, you know, that, that can hardly move when gets up in the morning and, you know, gets down to get something on the ground, looks around and says, well, what else can I do now that I'm down here, you know, before I go through the process of getting up again? It's not I just want a body that works better. It's kind of a theological shorthand for all that that transformation represents. Because six verses later, 
Paul again uses this sort of theological shorthand when he says he looks forward to being present with the Lord. Verse 8. He's looking forward to when he will be present with the Lord. So in each one of these rep- uh, references here, Paul's referring to just a different aspect of the Christian's hope. But each one represents kind of our entire experience in eternity. So when he says in one place he's, he's eagerly awaiting the redemption of the body, and another place to be present with the Lord, it's all about the same experience. It's about the same thing. Okay, you might say, it's, Sounds great on Sunday morning, but what is it like in daily life when, if I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this, this yearning happens? Obviously, the kind of yearning Paul would write about here isn't just something that happened in church on Sunday morning. It's something that characterizes the Christian throughout the week, groaning for the redemption of the body, groaning to be present with the Lord, eagerly awaiting the redemption of the body. What does this look like in real life? I'm going to refer several times here to a man named David Brainerd uh, and, and someone named Jonathan Edwards. I've been doing this throughout the conference. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, if you're not familiar with that name, is sometimes considered one edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, calls him the greatest mind America has ever produced. Fascinating when you realize that the people who said that weren't religiously inclined at all. They were modern, secular, European academics. When they looked over the entire American intellectual landscape, they didn't choose an engineer, they didn't choose a mathematician, they didn't choose a statesman or a scientist, they chose a rural preacher of the 1700s. So obviously he's pretty sharp, right? Our greatest native theologian, he, was, he preached the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was one of the leading figures in perhaps the greatest movement of the Holy Spirit uh, in our nation's history, the First Great Awakening. Uh, And he lived, his most famous part of his ministry there was in Northampton, Massachusetts. When Edwards was about 50, he was burdened for uh, the young people, he said, of his town. And young people in that day didn't refer to the youth group. There was no such youth group, as you know. I think even the term teenager is only about 100 years old. When he referred to the young people, he was referring to people in, in their early 20s. We're having sort of a crisis about this in Northampton at that time. Northampton was still on the frontier. There in central Massachusetts, was still on the frontier. And Edwards had had ancestors that had been, um, you know, scalped, that had been killed and, uh, and so forth. <clears throat> and so this was a very realistic thing just beyond the borders of, of Northampton. And so... Um, there was not a lot of available land. I mean, it was out there, but you had to clear cut it, you know, of all the trees. And then the farther out you went, the more vulnerable you were to, uh, to attacks. So all the arable land was owned by the parents of these people. But in those days, you really couldn't get married unless you had a means of supporting a family. But most of the people were, were farmers. So you begin to get the picture. These young people were in their 20s, but there wasn't any real land available for them. And so if there's no land, you can't really get married. So you got a lot of these single uh, younger people, and that just fomented a lot of, uh, of difficulty. And uh, so they're living in the basement of their parents' log cabins. Um, 
And so they weren't getting married. They didn't really have, you know, a lot of prospects for the future. Just a lot of things were happening. But Edwards was appealing to them to live for God, to live godly lives. But they kind of thought he was an old fuddy-duddy. You know, he's just, he's an old man. He doesn't understand. Edwards is already, of course, way beyond the natural lifespan for people in that age. And he meets a young missionary named David Brainerd, who was a missionary to Indians in New England. And David Brainerd was an incredibly godly man. And he's, he's famous for his devotion, but he also had tuberculosis. And he would die at the age of 28. But he's famous for kneeling in the snow as he prayed for the Indians and, and you know, spitting up, coughing up in the, the blood, the, the snow being red in front of him. And, but he was a very godly young man. And he spent his last weeks of his life in the home of Jonathan Edwards, cared for by his Edwards daughter, Jerusha, who would die of tuberculosis four months later. And in October of his 28th year, David Brainerd died in Edwards' home. Edwards took Brainerd's diary, and he wrote a short biography of David Brainerd. It's the first biography written on the North American continent. And he put the two together called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, and it, today it is still the best-selling of all of Edwards' books. And I'm told it's been used to call more people into missions than any book besides the Bible. And he did this because he was able to hand it to young people and say, here's someone your age who's living a godly life. Here's an example for you that's not an old man like me. Here's someone your age. This is the way you ought to live. So a little bit of background about David, uh, David Brainerd. And so we're going to see in Brainerd a good example of someone just in daily life groaning for the redemption of the body in agony to see the Lord, to see heaven. Saturday, June 12th, 1742. Spent much time in prayer this morning and enjoyed much sweetness. There's a word you're going to hear a lot. Much sweetness. Felt insatiable longings after God much of the day. I wondered how poor souls do to live who have no God. The world, with all its enjoyments, quite vanished. I see myself very helpless, but I have a blessed God to go to. I longed exceedingly to be dissolved and to be with Christ, to behold His glory. Oh, my weak, weary soul longs to arrive at my Father's house. Do you hear the sweetness that's in there? There was a longing, an agony, a groaning for what he knew was coming, but he did not yet have. But the anticipation of what would be interspersed a sweetness into these groans and longings. That's what this groaning is like in a Christian. It's, it's an agony, it's a groaning for a separation from something you don't want yet have. You want desperately, but you don't have yet. So there's a groaning in that. But it's, there's still a sweetness of knowing what is coming. This is what C.S. Lewis portrayed in his retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche in a book called Till We Have Faces. Think of a Christian's longing to be in heaven when, uh, when Psyche explains to her friend, she says, it was when I was happiest that I longed most. It was on happy days when we were up there on the hills, the three of us with the wind and the sunshine. Do you remember? The color, 
and the smell and looking across at the gray mountain in the distance. And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else there must be more of it. Something, everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I, I couldn't, not yet. And I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from. Psychic, give voice to your soul. You ever look at some glorious sunset splendid across the whole western horizon? And it just, it's so beautiful, it almost hurts. It's so beautiful, your heart aches because it makes you think, I want to go to the place where all that beauty was created. I want to go to a place more beautiful than every sunset that has ever closed out every day in the history of the world. Does it seem that the life you long for is in another world like that, a more beautiful world, that, that the world you long for in heaven seems more natural to you than the one on this earth? Does it make you seem your, your deepest longings were made to be fulfilled in another world because you know they cannot be, they never will be fulfilled in this world, not your deepest longings, but in that other world, as you look across the sunset, you know, in the rays of the sun high above the clouds, and you think, oh, there is a place, there is a world where all this beauty comes from, and that's my home. These are the groans of a growing Christian, one who knows that God has made us for glorious communion with himself and that our hearts are never fully satisfied until we are there and home and with him. So growing Christians are groaning Christians. The second, growing Christians groan for holiness. Growing Christians, what they groan for is holiness. As I mentioned earlier, age and experience have tempered somewhat my evaluation of those often heavenward thoughts of those older believers I pastored. But I still remain reluctant to assign the right motives to all longings for heaven. I mean, the older I get, the more I understand the desire for rest, right? Eternal rest. But Buddhists want that. Muslims want that. Atheists want that. Everyone, you know, dreams of a time for an end to a wearying existence and the beginning of a new and more restful existence. So there's nothing uniquely Christian about wanting rest. In the same way, just to, to pine for relief of your burdens is not uniquely Christian either. That, that's universal. Every person dreams of a time where they can put their burdens aside. So we're going to base our confidence that we know God, we're going to heaven because we want what every person in the world wants. Even self-confessed God-haters want that. So there's nothing uniquely Christian about 
wanting to lay our burdens down and go to a world that's not full of burdens. And just like the desires for rest and relief, so the desire for reunion with long-gone loved ones is not uniquely Christian either. Just because someone looks forward with an increased hope to seeing a child who has died, spouse, parent, friend, doesn't mean that we're Christians. In fact, it's no mark of Christianity at all. Just because we want to see someone who we cannot see anymore, a loved one we cannot see anymore. I mean, everyone would identify with that. That's not uniquely Christian. In fact, I would say even some eagerness to see Jesus is not necessarily a mark of knowing Jesus at all. It could just be a mark of natural curiosity, just like someone would say, hey, I'm looking forward to a place where I can meet Jonathan Edwards, you know, this great mind, or King David, or some other famous person to say, hey, how was it like? What was it like when this happened and so forth? Natural curiosity may be at the root of all this. So the question is not merely, do you yearn for heaven? And to be with Jesus. But which heaven and which Jesus do you yearn for? Growing Christians increasingly long for a holy heaven, not just a restful one. We long for holy relationships, not just nostalgic ones. We long to see a holy Jesus. And at last to see face to face the one the angels call holy holy, holy. That's the heartbeat of a Christian, not just for rest, relief, and reunion, but for the holiness of heaven, a holy God, a holy body, a holy mind, holy relationships. We ache to share in this more than we want the the rest, relief, and reunion that heaven does promise. It is there, but there's something we want more than that. And it troubles me when I find people increasingly saying they can't wait to go from this world and be reunited with a person or just be done with the pains and burdens of this body. I understand all that. That's normal. But when that is the goal, that is the longing more than a longing to see Jesus and a holy heaven and a holy body like the, Paul, like the Apostle Paul describes, that is a concern Jonathan Edwards put it this way, but neither a longing to be in heaven nor a longing to die are in any measure so distinguishing marks of true saints as longing after a more holy heart. In describing his own spiritual longings and cravings, Edwards put it this way, the heaven I desired was a heaven of holiness to be with God and to spend my eternity in divine love and holy communion with Christ. My mind was very much taken up with contemplations of heaven and the enjoyments there, and living there in perfect holiness, humility, and love. Not just being with people my heart longs after, but to have a more holy heart in that relationship. Edward's younger friend Brainerd shared his heartbeat, And I think the heartbeat with all growing Christians when he said on October 26, 1744, my soul was exceedingly grieved for sin and prized and longed after holiness. It wounded my heart deeply, yet sweetly. There's that word again. To think how I had abused 
a kind God. I long to be perfectly holy, that I might not grieve a gracious God who will continue to love, notwithstanding how his love is abused. Yes, I want to be in heaven. I want to see Jesus, but I want to stop sinning against him. It grieves me to know that there's a God in heaven who loves me, but I keep offending and breaking his law. All this that we just talked about is consistent with Paul's description again, back where we started in Romans 8, 23. So we've seen some illustrations there of what he said there. Not only that, but he says, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, if we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, here's what is true of us. We groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting to see lost loved ones, eagerly awaiting to lay our burdens down, equal, uh, eagerly waiting just to have rest? No, he says, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our body. Our soul is saved. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit as an indication of that. But now that gives me a longing, a hunger, a holy desire for all of me to be redeemed. My body to be cleansed from sin. To live at last in a, a body redeemed from sin. To to exult in the breathtaking presence of God Himself, to see face to face the one in, in blinding light for whom to see now would just incinerate us because of His burning holiness against our sinful bodies. But then to be in His presence, our hearts and minds soaring free from any vestige of sin, this is the heartbeat of all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. We long for that because the Holy Spirit gives us that longing if He is there. You have a Holy Spirit in the presence, within, dwelling within a body that's not perfectly holy, and that Holy Presence transforms us so that we long and desire for this holy heaven, a holy God, and to be holy ourselves. And so that's why Paul says in the book of Galatians that the, the Spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit going on within us is the work of the Holy Spirit and what He desires, what He causes us now to newly desire. But we still live in a body that finds sin attractive. We still have a principle at work within us that, that finds sin and temptation appealing. And they war against each other. So we want to sin, but... We also don't want to sin, and there's a battle always going on, and we long to be rid of that battle and to have a mind no longer drawn to temptation ever again, a mind no longer affected by sin anymore, and to be in a body completely free of all this conflict. <coughs> now, if there's anyone who would look forward to the redemption of the body, more in a physical sense than in a spiritual one, it would be a Christian in circumstances like Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know Johnny Erickson Tata, she's just a little bit older than I am. She had a diving incident in Maryland when she was a teenager. She's been in a wheelchair for 50 years as a quadriplegic and even suffered from breast cancer now in the last few years. As if being a quadriplegic wasn't enough. She was on our campus recently, and if the hand of Belshazzar's feast were to appear and write on the wall, bad news, only one person is going to heaven in all the earth. My, my guess is probably Johnny Erickson Tata. But I, I heard her say this. People say, you must be looking forward to heaven, thinking I'm looking forward to getting my new body. 
And after all these years in a wheelchair, it's true that I am. But more than I'm looking forward to my new body. And at this point, her voice began to choke with emotion. She said, I'm looking forward to a heart without sin. Elsewhere, she added, most people will continue to think that getting a new body is my focus, but I can't wait to be clothed in righteousness without a trace of sin. For me, that will be the best part of heaven. Now, I've heard her talk about she can't wait to get out of that wheelchair and dance for Jesus. But more than she wants a new body, she wants a new heart. That's a Christian. That's someone in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. To be pure in heart, to see the Lord face to face. This is our highest hopes, our deepest groans. As my preacher hero of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, summarized, what are you looking for and hoping for in heaven? Let me ask you a question that perhaps should come before that. Do you ever look forward to being in heaven? The person who looks forward to death simply wants to get out of life because of his troubles. That's not Christian. That's pagan. The Christian has a positive desire for heaven and therefore asks, do you look forward to being in heaven? But more than this, what do we look forward to when we get to heaven? What is it that we are desiring? Is it the rest of heaven? Is it to be free from troubles and tribulations? Is it the peace of heaven? Is it the joy of heaven? All those things are to be found there, thank God, but that is not the thing to look forward to in heaven. It is the face of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus said. To stand in the very presence of God, to gaze and gaze upon God. Do we long for that? Is that heaven to us? Is that the thing we want above everything else? Do you realize that for a lot of people who speak of heaven and long for heaven, heaven would be just as great if Jesus wasn't even there. The heaven they envision doesn't necessarily include Jesus. Everything they think of when they anticipate of heaven is not about Jesus. But folks, Jesus is heaven. Jesus is what makes heaven to be heaven, to see Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to be made like Jesus. That is heaven. So growing Christians... Grown like this, spiritually flourishing and healthy Christians answer Lloyd-Jones' question, yes, we do long for the holiness of heaven and the face of God above everything else. So third, growing Christians groan for holiness in heaven more than anything. So growing Christians are groaning Christians. Groaning Christians groan for holiness And third, growing Christians groan for holiness more than anything else. Back in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, Paul described this heavenly holiness that we groan for as something we are earnestly desiring. Earnestly desiring. Now, years before he wrote that, Paul was given the ultimate human experience. He says, when it happened, I don't know. I don't know if I was in the body. I don't know if I was out of the body. I I don't know. But he was taken to heaven. The ultimate human experience. He was given a glimpse of what awaits us there. Our holy home. To see the angels there. Not yet people in their eternal bodies. That's going to happen only the glorified body at the resurrection. But he saw 
the glories of heaven. He said, I saw a thing, I heard things I'm not able, I'm not permitted to, to repeat. Unlike people in your day, unfortunately, I didn't get a movie deal or a book deal out of, out of it when I went to heaven. God wouldn't let me do that. But after that indescribable experience, and in fact, the, the famous thorn in the flesh <clears throat> you know about Paul having, it was given to him, he said, so he wouldn't exalt himself. He wouldn't walk around going, guess where I've been? <laughs> What's the best thing you've got? Let me tell you, what I can, whatever you say, I can top what you've, you can say. You're the richest man in the world? Well, that's nothing. You're the king of the world? That's nothing. I've been to heaven. Top that. To keep him from doing that, he was given the thorn in the flesh. But he said after this experience, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. I'll plant more churches. I'll see more people saved. I'll have an impact for Christ. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I can stay here. God will likely continue using me to perform miracles. I might see, continue to see people raised from the dead. Great revivals taking place because of my preaching and doing it all for Jesus. Oh, that'll be so satisfying. But you know what? I've seen where we're going. And Christ is there. And that is not just better. He says it is far better. Paul writes like a man who's not only tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but he found it addictive. He could not get enough. So consider the intensity of the words we see here. We groan, he says, earnestly desiring to be with Christ, which is far better. He found the holiness of heaven that he was given a glimpse of just addictive. He could not get enough, and he wanted that more than anything. He wanted the one thing that could satisfy, the rapturous, full-faced enjoyment of God Himself. It's incomparable, Edwards said. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children are the company of early friends. Earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. David Brainerd was another who longed for the holy ocean of God like Edward's. And he wanted it more than anything else. Tuesday, June 15th, 1742. Had the most ardent longings after God that ever I felt in my life. At noon, in my secret retirement, I could do nothing but tell my Lord in a sweet, there's that word again, in a sweet calm that he knew. <laughs> I longed for nothing but himself. Nothing but holiness. That he had given me these desires and he only could give me the thing desired. Basically he's saying, Lord, it's your fault. Lord, you know, uh, the only thing I want is you. Holiness in your presence, being with you. And it's your fault I'm that way. <laughs> you made me this way. Your spirit has given me these hungers and longings, these ardent longings. And only you can give me what I desire most, because what I desire most is you. That's a Christian. What I desire most is you. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? If your greatest treasure, your greatest longing, what you want most sits at the right hand of God, your mind, your heart will be there too. If your treasure is the face of God, it's where your heart will be, your longings more than anything else. Now that is not to deny the many legitimate longings that we have on this earth for things on this earth that are God-given, God-ignited. The, the longings to get married, to have children, to experience job satisfaction. Things like this may be, may be strong and, and long-lasting and good and God-ignited, as I said, but even if you wanted one of those things as much as Johnny Erickson Tata would like to walk, Growing Christians would say with Johnny Erickson Tata that year in and year out, nothing outgrowns our groans for holiness and for heaven. Not diminishing anything that God puts in the hearts of Christians for things on this earth. That's good. But there's one that excels them all, and that is a desire for God himself. So lastly, let me turn to this, that groaning Christians are growing Christians. First thing I said was growing Christians are groaning Christians. The reverse is also true. Groaning Christians grow. Two things. First, they set their minds on things above. That's why. They set their minds on things above, as the Bible tells us in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Christians grow because they set their minds on things that have the power to change their lives. They think about things, they think about great things, great things that have the power to change their lives. There are no more powerful or worthy subjects to think about than Jesus, than heaven, than holiness, the redemption of the body. So Christians take seriously the command in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where we're told, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. God gives us jobs. He gives us families. He gives us responsibilities here, and they take our thoughts to adequately steward those things. But the mindset is on Christ, holiness, and heaven. Like, like a magnet, a compass rather, a compass. You may have a day that, you know, has all, you know, like Elvis just all shook up, you know. Your, your, your thoughts are having to go all over the place, job, to home, to children, to work again, and, and all sorts of things. But Christian, you, you let their minds settle for just a little bit, and it always comes back to Christ. Because the mind is set on Christ, set by the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't set your mind on things above. You, you can try, okay, it's important, so I'm, I'm going to think about heaven a lot more. You can't. Too many distractions, and you don't have the appetite for it. Eventually, it 
repels your thoughts because other things are more attractive. Things on this world that are visible, tangible, are more attractive to the mind without the Holy Spirit. But to the mind that has this alien presence from heaven, there is a magnetism to heaven, a magnetism to Christ. It's like a holy magnet, a heart and mind that points toward, is drawn toward holiness. And that's why sooner or later, one of the marks of a Christian is they think about God and the things of God spontaneously, as we said the other night. You're just walking down the street. You think about God and the things of God. You're stuck in traffic, frustrated by that, but you think about God and the things of God. Often, like, what's God thinking about what I'm thinking right now? You wake up in the middle of the night. You find your thoughts going Godward for no explainable reason. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You think about God and the things of God spontaneously, abundantly, delightfully. You set your mind on things above. I mean, you're going to be living there soon, right? When you know you're going to be moving, you, you check out maps, don't you? You look at you know, websites of the places and maps and what's, what's it like there in that new place? What's the neighborhood like? What's, so forth. When someone knows they're going to be living in heaven, they, they think about it. When they really believe and they really anticipate being in heaven, you think about it. You're going to be living there soon and living there forever. So that just makes sense. You've seen, if not in person, you've certainly seen pictures of, of old um, mills of various types. And they placed them, of course, by streams and rivers, right? Because outside the mill was a water wheel. And the shaft of that wheel would go into the mill, and they would attach belts to that, which would go up to these pulleys and things in the ceilings and down, and things were belt-driven. And that's where the power came from. And so when they closed up for the day, they would disengage things from the gears from that wheel and the shaft inside. But the wheel kept turning because the water kept moving. Your mind is like that. One of the English Puritans, Nathaniel Renew, talked about that. The mind's like a water wheel. It's always turning. Even when you're asleep, you're dreaming, your mind is active in ways you're not even aware of. Christians like to put the best thoughts in there as much as possible. Apostle Paul's a great example of this. He's about to die. What does he ask for? Timothy, bring the books, bring the parchments. I mean, here he is about to die. What does he want to think about? Doctrine. <laughs> this is the man who wrote the doctrine we study. And he's dying. But he knew that what, there are no greater thoughts I can think about than God and the things of God. So I only have a little time left on this earth. I want to make sure I think about the best thoughts. Christians have an affinity for, an attraction for the kinds of thoughts, the subjects that have the power to change your life. It's great to think about hockey. It's great to think about soccer. It's great to think about politics. But they don't have the power to change your eternal life. And it's important to be good citizens and think about, think about certain things in the place we live. But the greatest thoughts are the ones that have the greatest power to change our lives. God and the things of God. So Christians 
happily, gloriously set their minds on things above. And second, growing and groaning Christians purify themselves in anticipation of seeing the pure one. The Apostle John wrote about this. He says in 1 John 3, 2, When Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Theologians refer to this as the beatific vision. When we see him as he is, we will be transformed to be as he is. Not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. We will be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity. Reflecting, radiating the glory of God from every pore and cell of our bodies. Then, note what it says about those who groan with that anticipation. Not just curiosity about when Jesus is coming, what it's going to be like. They groan for that. It says, and everyone, not just the most devoted, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone who has the hope that Jesus is coming, at long last he's coming, and you groan to see him, you're in the grip of the groan. The groan for him grips you and changes you. And so it says, everyone who has this groaning purifies himself. You're growing as a Christian. You're longing to become more Christ-like and you're taking action to become more Christ-like. You're praying the Bible. You're meditating on Scripture. You're doing the things that we talked about in the conference this week. Things like that not only appeal to you, but you want to engage them because they... They help you experience God, and there's nothing you long for more than that. Your longings for holiness pull you toward holiness now. Is this your hope? Do you have that hope, not just out of curiosity, but out of longing, out of groaning, to see Him as He is? Well, how does it cause you to purify yourself how are you growing in Christ-likeness because of your groaning <clears throat> for Christ-likeness? And God willing, just a little less than nine hours from now, I'll be on a Delta jet descending over the grain fields of southern Indiana. As the lights of Louisville appear in the distance, the sun just over the horizon in the west. I look out the window, look at those freshly, those dark, freshly planted cornfields, southern Indiana. As I look at those lights in the distance, I'll think about what awaits me on Peppermint Street and who waits for me there. And I'll get more and more desirous of getting home. It's natural to think about what awaits me, who awaits me. The nearer I get to the end of my journey. Well, you are nearer to the end of your journey than ever before. You're a day closer than yesterday. Are your thoughts increasingly homeward? The closer you get to your heavenly home, the growing Christian will and for all the right reasons think more about who awaits and what awaits 
and knowing the nature of it all, he will yearn, yearn. Maybe something like this. High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys. Oh, bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart. Whatever befalls, still be my vision. Oh, ruler of all. Let's pray. Oh, high king of heaven. May we reach heaven's joys more than, we want that more than anything else. And the joys of heaven are the face of God. More than the face of any long departed loved one, it is the face of God. It is the heart of Jesus. Oh, we want a redemption of our bodies so that we don't sin anymore. We want to be in a holy place, a holy world, with a holy body, a holy people, and a holy God. Your Holy Spirit gives us that appetite and longing. Oh, for the fulfillment of this desire, there's a sweetness in it, but there's a longing, a groaning. Oh, high King of heaven, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.